Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in today's episode, I'm speaking to Joan Williams. Joan Williams is Distinguished Professor of Law and UC Hastings Foundation Chair, as well as Director of the Center for Work-Life Law. And in this episode, we discuss Joan Williams' 2017 book, White Working Class, which argues that Americans must start understanding their political issues through the framework of class to be able to create coalitions that are politically viable to overcome some of the challenges that uh, Americans are currently facing, specifically in the economic realm. I think you will enjoy this one a lot. Um, Yeah, have fun. Hello, Professor Joan Williams. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we're very happy to have you on. Professor Williams, in your 2017 book, The White Working Class, you argued effectively that the inability of American liberal elites, especially to empathize with and to comprehend the lives of white working class Americans is pushing them towards right wing populism. Could you elaborate a little bit? Yes, it's become nothing but more true since I wrote that sentence in 2017. I mean, COVID is the most salient recent example. I mean, COVID in the United States has turned into a culture war between uh, rural, largely white working class Americans. And, you know, I was in Berkeley yesterday at the farmer's market and everybody had on their mask. Um, And, you know, my reaction is the CDC told us that we didn't have to have masks on when we were outside months ago. Mm. Um, so who's the science-based, which is the science-based approach? I don't think it's this one. Um, but if you ask people in Berkeley, they would be absolutely confident that they were being responsible and that um, other people, other Americans were being highly irresponsible and didn't believe in science. Now, I don't endorse at this point um, not taking COVID seriously. I don't endorse that at any point. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in some ways, I think that we're in two tribes, neither one of which is really acting on the science. Which is kind of an interesting point, right? Because I think we're used to this conversation about how one part of this country just doesn't get it in all kinds of different uh, realms of conversation. But your book is effectively saying, no, what you know what, um, maybe it's the other group that doesn't get it to some extent, right? There, there are certain things that uh, the liberal educated elite just does not understand. Um, so, so what are those things? Well, I mean, the liberal um, educated elite, <clears throat> like every human being, sees things through their own keyhole. Mm. And it's not as if Um, You know, my crowd here of progressives in San Francisco has a clear-eyed vision of reality. And there are these stupid people in Kansas who can't see what's in their own Mm. self-interest, which is very often the way my crowd sees it. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, I share every single progressive value there is 
without exception, I am so conventional. Yeah, I just cannot express to you how conventional I am. But that doesn't mean that I don't see that things from my attitude, from things on religion to abortion to climate change reflects uh, a social status of considerable privilege. For example, on climate change, I'm super concerned about the end of the world, Mm. not that concerned about the end of the month. There are a lot of people in this country who are much more concerned about the end of the month than they are about the end of the world. And that is just one example of how these truths that to me seem indisputably true, let's just get that clear, reflect my own class privilege. Mm -hmm. All right. But what, what is the political economy here? Or let me start like this. You make a clear distinction in your book between poor people and what you define as the working class, which a lot of people in the US especially term middle class. Um, I'm sure there are other uh, terms that are being used. But there are commentators that pick a similar thread as you, but then ultimately make the case, you know what, what we really need is a higher minimum wage or universal basic income or something like this to address the economic grievances of yeah, poor Americans, I suppose. Would such policies really address the grievances that you see as most relevant to that particular group? Well, in the, in American politics, <clears throat> I mean, you can divide class up any, you know, any number of ways as you can divide up any apple, any number mm. of ways, but the relevant cut to understand current political dynamics in the United States is to have the bottom 30% by household income. They are the low income. They are the poor. And then the top, roughly 16 to 20% um, by household income and college degree, which is, I call it the professional managerial elite. The group that really is driving American politics to the right is the the broad middle classes, that middle 53%. And I mean, the best proxy is to call, I mean, they are, they are literally the middle class. You know why? They're in the middle. Mm. <laughs> my, my group often thinks they're in the middle because we're not like truly wealthy, but we're not middle class. We're in the elite, a lot of us. Um, but the, the um, broad, the f- fragile and failing middle class in the United States is um, really the group that has gone hard, hard to the right in the past 10 years. Probably the best single um, way to refer them in the U.S. is blue collar, although that's a little anachronistic. But we're not talking about the poor. So, I mean, I'm I'm in favor of you know minimum uh, higher minimum wages, but that's this group of middle class people. They are trying to avoid the minimum wage. That's mm. not. They're not going to see that as a political gift to them. They're going to see that as a giveaway to other people. Uh, at their expense, as they try to maintain their hold on the middle on middle class life, we're constantly, you know, talking about echo chambers, fake news, or you know, people are aghast that uh, we we talked about this, right? Like the ignorance of some people and things like that. And um, at the same time, you know, we live in this extremely information dense time. So, how is it possible, or how is it plausible, as you say, that the the issue here is really one of incomprehension, of lack of understanding of what these people really want? That's right. I mean, it's it's a combination of incomprehension. It's it's really several different things. It's inability to understand how the progressive point of view is just one take on reality mm. rather than the absolute truth. 
its inability to understand how the very different take on reality of this fragile and failing middle class is a reflection of their class, their social location, as we would say as sociologists. Um, and so it's it's like a, a failure of understanding both of one's own perspective and how contingent that is, and of how the perspective of the fragile and failing middle class makes sense from their point of view. And I'll just to give you some examples, I've been spending the summer studying polling data broken mm-hmm. down by the easiest proxy for class, which is college grads yeah. and non-college grads. And so, for example, in if you ask people, do you believe uh, abortion should be legal in all cases, college grads are more, over 68% say yes, but high school grads are less, only 50% say less. Now, how does that make sense? I mean, I'm a white woman of a certain age, so I actually care a lot about abortion, always Mm. have since I was a teenager. But there's a strong within this middle class, and in fact, all non-elites, this is in this way, the middle class and the poor are not that dissimilar. They um, see uh, the progressive, the professional managerial elite as obsessed with their jobs, Mm. not understanding that family comes first ambitious in a kind of nihilistic way that uh, doesn't understand, doesn't have your head screwed on straight. And um, so their views on abortion uh, stem from that. Whereas from my point of view, I've always been super work identified. I really knew I wanted to have a career. I thought that was really central to my identity. And so abortion rights have always seemed really central to me. Whereas if I were a blue collar woman, <clears throat> which would mean I would we have only access to pink collar jobs, by the way, right. um, and th- that were ba- ill-paid and probably sexual harassment into the boot. Mm. I probably would identify more with motherhood than with um, than with a job. So that's just a good example of how what we see as truths reflect our um, our position in society. Uh, reading your book, I really couldn't help honestly uh expecting that you would probably uh, be accused of a lot of unpleasant things writing this yeah. uh, <laughs> because I, I think really instill right i mean you wrote this in uh, 2017 um it's 2021 now the, the opinions haven't really changed to be very honest right like many are of the opinion that the people that you describe they're not entitled to be angry because they're wrong uh, they yeah. they don't get it either because yeah. uh, cultural norms are evolving or because they just don't understand economics or uh, they're racist, they're backward, and uh, they're demanding of privileged treatment despite being unwilling to move, unwilling to go to college, and as you already mentioned, right, unwilling to to vote in their best interest is is what is often um, and argued. Um, so you argue that such statements are not only, um, you know, as we said, politically unproductive, but also unfair to some extent. But is there not a tension between, as you do, understanding the anger of these people and legitimizing them wholesale to some extent, mm-hmm. possibly undermining progressive goals uh, that are associated with the rights of minorities? Well, I mean, the of course, what happened after um, 2016 is that the, Amer- the United States, or by which I mean the progressive man- uh, professional managerial elite, certainly opened up its ears and could mm. hear arguments based on class. 
<clears throat> and then in 19, in 2018, I felt like a curtain had, had fallen and that years were closed again. Not too surprising in the United States, we spent most of our history denying the existence of class. So mm. what was amazing is not that the ears closed, but that the ears ever opened. Um, but the, what ha- the, the way that closure happened this time around was that uh, of this is just racism. Um, this is just uh, uh, anxiety right. because whites are no longer the uh, no longer dominant, and you know I I I don't only study social class. Uh, I study inequality. I like to think of myself as a scholar of social inequality, and so um, it's not my it's not my department to deny the existence of racism in mm-hmm. this case or any other. Where you've got right white people, you've got a lot of racism to go around. But you have to understand the racial dynamic here, which is that in the United States, since about 1670, <clears throat> there has been a very conscious effort to drive a wedge between white people and specifically black people, now people of color, um, working class people, in order that elites don't have to deal with a interracial coalition based on class. And simply to have elite white people calling, uh, saying that they're not going to listen to the the hidden injuries of class mm. because the other white people, the other non-elite white uh, elite white people are racist, that just that just feels so wrong to me. Um, there's a lot of racism in my crowd. There's a lot of racism in this crowd. But if we just say we're not going to listen to these people because those other white people are racist, what we do is drive the, the this fragile and failing middle class into the hands of the far right. And that's all too often what I see. But why is it that Republicans, and it's, it's not just um, politicians, right? It's it's um, right-leaning radio hosts, TV hosts. Why are they so much better or more successful, at least, at connecting with um, the white working class? I think there are a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, going back to what the what's the matter with Kansas debate, you know, and why do these people keep voting against their own self-interest? Uh, I mean, the shocking thing for me as a Democrat is that the, the fragile and failing working uh, middle class does feels that Democrats have failed to deliver for them as well as Republicans economically. Mm. And this is objectively true. You know, yeah. um, you know, uh, it used to be like 90 percent of Americans did better than their parents. Now it's about 50 percent. Objectively, what they are, what they perceive is true, that they've gotten screwed economically. That is true. They have mm. gone screwed economically. So it's it's really, I mean, another classic insult is they're voting against their economic self-interest. I mean, the painful thing to realize for me as a progressive is like, no, they aren't, because we have failed them too. And so what Republicans did is starting around 1970, realized a couple, that these people, non-elites generally, are far more culturally conservative than elites are. And Republicans realized that they weren't going, you know, they were for the rich. So they weren't going to be able to connect with American voters uh, economically. So they really doubled down on cultural issues. Now they have also, um, Republicans found a very effective set of techniques to connect even economically with these, um, with the fragile and failing middle class, basically saying, we're the job creators. 
the regulators are the job destroyers. Who do mm. you prefer? Well, these people prefer a good job. It's right. like their grandfathers have. And so Republicans, I think, have been very analytical about how to connect with people whom they realize are very different from themselves. I fear sometimes that progressives aren't interested in connecting with these people because progressives are sometimes so convinced that they're just speaking absolute truth straight from God's lips. Mm. They don't don't have to to connect with anybody else's reality. Well, you know, we have a democracy. That ain't going to work. Yeah, it seems at least politically or strategically, I suppose, it seems like a very bad decision, right, to, to, to go into that direction. Absolutely. I mean, I am distraught because I care about things like climate change. I care about workers' rights. I care about abortion rights. And Mm. in my opinion, Democrats' inability to deliver on any of those issues and the gutting of things like workers' rights has been as a result of this class culture gap where the Republicans understand they're talking to people who are very different from them. Right. And Democrats, the only message there that the fragile and failing middle class is hearing from Democrats is that you're stupid. Yeah. Like, who are you going to vote for? Fortunately, one extraordinarily important point that you bring up that I have struggled to articulate prior to this is that in, especially in you know academic economics, uh, people bring up the fact that, you know, wages may have stagnated, but purchasing power may not have to the same extent. Right. So we uh, may not have as much job security anymore, but, you know, in exchange, you get access to much cheaper goods uh, from China. Right. Like you may not have your secure manufacturing jobs anymore, but why do you care? Right. Like you still have uh, some job somewhere that gives you enough money to purchase cheaper goods. So you may even have a bigger bundle of things that you can buy. Right. But that obviously there's there's a clear trade off that is being uh, decided for one side of that trade off by by someone else here. Right. And you argue that. Maybe maybe people prefer security much more over uh, their uh, purchasing power, right? Like, let's assume this whole purchasing power argument holds, right? That still doesn't um, imply that uh, these people are wrong and saying, no, you know what, I want a stable job. No, that's, such, that's just such a silly argument. I, I, you know, I know economists make it, but it's a very silly argument. So I'm happy because I have six pairs of Nikes. And it, because I'm so happy about my six pairs of Nikes, I don't care that I don't know if I'm going to lose my house because I um, keep getting laid off from my blue collar job, or I don't know if I'm going to be evicted from my uh, apartment because I have an unstable job where they give me a different number of hours every week and and don't pay for my health insurance. But because I have six pair of Nikes, I'm perfectly happy. Only an economist could believe that with respect. There are two important points that you also address, which are usually brought up in response to, to concerns like that when, you, when, when people like you bring them up, is that, um, well, there are a lot of jobs in certain areas, and uh, why don't you just go to college? Because there are a lot of um, higher skill jobs where there is demand for, presumably, which you address perfectly in your book. And I think people should uh, read your book to, uh, to, to get a better uh, answer to those questions. But what I want to discuss right now is one curious thing that I'm not from the US, right? So when I came here, one thing that I noticed um, is that the main solution that Americans see to issues like social and economic inequality here is uh, social mobility, 
right? I'm not, obviously not the first one to, to recognize that, but um, I didn't know that before I came here. But the point is that, um, you know, in social mobility, primarily through higher education, right, through going to college. But of course, you know, that implies that the only way to escape a working class life or, or anything that is perceived to be wrong with that, right, is to effectively turn yourself into a different person, right, to escape it altogether, right? It's, it's not possible to, to remain in the working class. There, there's no policy to try to address raising the, the living standard of the working class at all. Yeah. Now, where are you from, by the way? I'm from Germany. Yeah, I assumed that because, you know, <laughs> Germany, Germany understood because of what happened in the 30s that when people see their families' futures burn down, they burn down everything. And if they're white people, this is not a pretty picture. Um, and they usually find a scapegoat and they blame things on them. And it's very similar to what's happening in the United States right now. And what Germany did as a result said that as a political move, we have to create solid blue collar jobs with honor, which doesn't exist in the United States, but does exist for blue collar jobs in Germany, um, is my understanding, with economic stability, um, with the ability to work hard and have a stable life and get a decent pension. And Germany, in my view, did all of those things because it understood just how dangerous a fragile and failing middle class is because he saw it in the 1930s. It goes straight to fascism. And that my fear is that that's what we're seeing in the United States. I hope it's not. But and your point that, you know, the, the U.S. did not used to be as different from Germany as it is in the 30s. The idea that you have a blue collar job that was honorable. I mean, you just look at the, the U.S. films, a lot of blue collar men, leaving the women aside for one, for one minute, were, were celebrated in the 30s. They were celebrated in Works, Proge- Works Progress Administration right. murals throughout the country. They were, um, they were, uh, they were uh, celebrated in lots of films. All of that was gone. That was like my generation, older than you. In the 70s, we came in um, and we were the hippie. You know, I'm from the hippie days. And like our elders were stupid. They were crazy. We were going to create the new world. And what we did is shifted the Democratic Party from blue collar issues to issues that were most cherished by people like me, abortion rights environmentalism, all the rest of it. And as part of that, we lost the ideal uh, that um, blue collar work was honorable and began to, that's when this ideology that you now see coming in um, from your generation in the United States is if you want social mobility, go to college. Mm. Uh, As you point out, one problem with that is it assumes that people, non-college grads want to want to go to college. And Mm. a lot of them don't. They think we're pathetic pencil pushers who never did an honest day work, our days work in our whole lives. And um, a lot of them are very um, bonded with the idea of working with their hands or actually giving, for example, in pink collar jobs, some concrete um, service that uh, gives that they feel is an important thing for a really simple reason. It's an important thing. We just happen to uh, belittle it in the United States. The other thing is that we have this crazy system 
where right now, in order to go to college, uh, we have this crazy system in the United States where now is in order to go to college, you have to go very deeply into debt. Right. And particularly working class guys who don't see themselves as, you know, founding a, a, a unicorn, they feel like they're going to be less attractive marriage partners if they're that deeply into debt. They um, feel like they're still pretty bonded being traditional uh, in the way that my crowd, my crowd aren't to being a good provider. Right. <clears throat> and so they're very reluctant to undertake to, uh, to, to undertake that level of debt. And there's been a sharp divergence. I and mean, as I always say, I went to Yale, Harvard, and MIT. If you can get to go to Yale, Harvard, and MIT, totally do. You should do it, yeah. But that's not what they're looking at. You know, they're looking at Southern Cal, you know, Fresno State. God knows what. I just made that up. But they're looking for a much at a much lower status degree. And the, the value of those degrees has diverged sharply in recent decades. So that the, the value of degrees from Yale, Harvard, and MIT is totally different and much more valuable than a value from a much lower ranked institution than it was 10, 15 years ago. So they're making a very rational economic decision. Um, partly it's a decision of like, I don't want to turn into a college, a college kid because you know, you're the person who, can I, can I swear or not? Please do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to turn into a college kid because they're the people who don't know shit about my job but are perfectly happy to tell me how to do it. You right. know, those not those kids not interested. And partly it's just like, you know, it's nice if your daddy can play, pay for college. Mine can't. And there's no guarantee it's going to pay off. Why would I do that? Yeah, and not really be able to work as much for at least four years, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and they see college, college kids who paid a lot of money for college and then end up working in a, a job that they could have done with a high school education. Then you feel like a chump mm. and you're not an attractive marriage partner because you have this huge debt. Shifting gears a little bit, there was also a lot of, you mentioned this, enthusiastic interest in your book, at least for a moment. I wasn't aware uh, of the fact that, as you were saying, pointing it out right now, that in 2018 already, people were uh, sort of not as uh, receptive anymore. Yeah, could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit and also explain if your thinking has evolved on this topic since you wrote the book? Um, I think what happened in 2018 is there a series of studies came down saying that this was about status anxiety, not about wrong, right? I mean, not about economics. Um, first of all, if your economics are, are 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 going south, you have status anxiety. So the idea that these were independent is a little weird. But the other thing is they measured economics in a way that again erases this fragile and failing middle class. They compared voters earning fifty thousand dollars or less to voters earning fifty thousand dollars or more which completely splits this middle-class group and therefore erases their existence. It wasn't, poor people don't vote Republican. I mean, mm. they, it's like, uh, they just don't uh, for obvious reasons. The, the rich at this point are split. The liberals vote Democrat, the, uh, the conservatives vote Republican. And this, this, um, this, the, the fragile and failing middle class, particularly in rural areas, they are the people who vote Republican. And they vote Republican because, in my view, because they've been reamed economically. And there's Republicans say, provide them an explanation. This is because you're white. What I'm seeking is for progressives to provide an alternative explanation. No, this is because you're working class. 
That's why it's so important to have a language of class in order to explain what's going on. But instead, what I hear the progressive elite saying is, you know, you're too racist um, to, and you're beneath my notice even to deal with you because you're racist or you're just stupid and don't understand science, you know, or don't understand science on climate change, on COVID. Again, you know, if you, um, if you insult people, they're, you know, the results are predictable. Um, has my change, has my thinking evolved? Uh, I just, I see cl- class conflict as driving, you know, American politics. I think it's the reason we can't get serious address climate change. I think it's the reason we have been ineffective at dealing with COVID. I think it's the reason we're losing abortion rights. Uh, I, you know, my, the, the way in which my, my thinking has evolved is that when I wrote the book, and particularly when I wrote the initial essay in Harvard Business Review that turned into the book, right. this, what's called the wages of whiteness strategy, that um, um, driving a wedge between non-elites of color and non and white elites had not been so evolved. And then it's been taken to Rococo degrees now. And so, um, you know, Trump, he was always a personal racist. There was the evidence about that, but he wasn't doing the kind of open racial, well, he was from the beginning. You remember Mexicans, his rapist quotes. Mm. So he was doing that from the beginning, but he got more and more and more and more into that. And the certainly the far right and the rise of white supremacy has, um, so the racial dynamic has just gotten whoa, way out of control, way out of control. Um, and that was not true when I first um, wrote that book. That had not yet happened. So someone may listen to this and say something along the lines of, you know what? You're right in the sense that a lot of this may be uh, politically unproductive or um, strategically unwise, or maybe it's even um, a little bit mean to, to speak about people like that. But you know what? The problem is really that we are moving fast into a 21st century economy, into a knowledge economy, meaning we need more people in college, not less. We don't need more blue collar jobs. You know what? Everything is going to be information, data driven. Um, we need more people who understand those kinds of things. So um What you're really advocating for is to uh, cling to a past that is, you know, slowly um, uh, drifting away. You know, that's why I think the proposal, Biden's proposal for to make the basic education system in the U.S. 14 years rather than 12 years by providing two years of free community college is so important Um, because you're right. Blue collar jobs are tech tech jobs. In this economy, you need, uh, but that doesn't mean that people should, you know, that the you you should say to people, okay, if you want to, you know, one of these jobs, you should what pay sixty thousand dollars a year for two years mm. to get to get, and then you won't even have a degree, so mm. you won't even be able to get a good job, and you'll have one hundred twenty thousand. You know, that's the <laughs> MIT model, right? That's that's silly. They're not going to do that. That's not solution. But because I, 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 I do agree with you that we need higher levels of education. But what we have now is an incredibly stratified right. educational system in the U.S., much more so than in most European countries. So that we have, unbel- have working class schools and we have elite schools. And we also have this on off thing of like either you get the whole college degree four year degree or you have this huge debt and you are basically a high school graduate. Uh, I mean, it's just it's designed um, so that a lot of people get really screwed economically. 
Um, so I think you can be very open to the fact that, yes, we do need people to have more higher levels of education, but this is not the way to do it. This is a way that works for the likes of me. Elite mm. white girls works great. Work great for me. There are, you know, there are programs that are year long that give you very practice oriented yeah. coding skills, for example, where you're like immediately employed and that's... Um, yeah, it shouldn't require a four-year uh, degree. Absolutely. I'm all for that. At the same time, you know, I think it's an illusion to think that uh, we're all just going to be uh, plugged into some sort of information pod soon, it right? There's, there's going to be very a lot of yeah. very physical things that still need to be done. I mean, it took me a long time to connect with this analysis, the fact that every pair of scissors I have bought for years has been from Germany. You know why? If you are in a high, high income country and you want to maintain manufacturing, you got to go very, very high quality, exactly what Germany's done. Um, and there's all kinds of interfaces now where you could have plumbers in Akron working with, with factories in China. We have right. the tech for that. We're just not making those jobs available and we're not really going after those jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned COVID. So just to add on what you're saying, a student recently asked me something along the lines of, uh, we, we just went through months of celebrating um, people as uh, essential workers, yet it seems like the, the only goal of our education system is to prevent people from going into those kinds of jobs. Isn't that kind of odd? I, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. So I'm going to ask uh, Joan Williams. <laughs> Well, I mean, the most of the um, other than doctors and nurses, highly educated, most of the essential workers were this in the bottom 30 percent, right. people who are truly low income. And certainly progressive elites have not had trouble bonding with those people recently um, for the last, say, 40 years in the U.S. They're all over the poor, very concerned about the. Uh, economic prospects of the poor, very concerned about addressing poverty. There's been a lot of imagination, not a lot of results, don't get me wrong, but a lot of imagination lavished on the poor. On the middle class, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right, it is ironic that um, this, is, this was a, a dignity of work millisecond, COVID was, when all of a sudden we saw there is a dignity in in all work and no job is an unskilled job. I mean, for me to try to be a hotel housekeeper, I wouldn't last a week. Mm. Um, that, there is, there's actually a politics to what's defined as an unskilled job. And I mean, you know, can I fix my own car? Can I fix my own toilet? You know, could I care for my own grandmother? No, I couldn't mm. do any of those things. Those are not, there's not unskilled jobs. So part of, um, uh, I mean, one, you know, little glimmer of, of silver lining in COVID was that we did in the United States have a period when we realized that there is dignity in work and there is no such thing as an unskilled or unimportant job. Um, and I think that was very precious. I, I hope we don't forget it. Right. Does that make you optimistic going forward? I always say I'm always optimistic. It's intellectually <laughs> very, very, it's intellectually very easy to be pessimistic. It's uh, that is true. It takes uh, uh, energy and um, character to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, but given you know the gap of cultural values between the two tribes in American politics, as you describe it, is it possible to, to reconcile without giving up some of those values um, on either side? Um, the 
Uh, it's funny, I, I've been having a series of conversations this summer and somebody was saying, oh, we shouldn't really divide things by class. We should divide things by religion, non, you know, um, Christian, non-Christian. He said, because then we won't have to give up so many of our progressive values. Mm. And my attitude is like, that's an exercise of privilege. Mm. That's saying that my values, which are the product of my social location, in other words, my class privilege, have to be the ones that trump before I even begin to talk about a coalition. That's not coalition building. That's an exercise of class privilege. And, you know, I don't want to give up on these things. I am, you know, as I keep saying, I'm so upset about climate change. I mean, I, you know, I woke up one day last year and, you know, we were living, in the, the sun never rose. It was bright orange outside. I am so upset about climate change. But to talk, what we've done is created a conversation in the United States where you just say the word climate change and you lose the ability mm. to get anything done. Um, so I'm not going to give up on climate change, but um, we have to give up on this sort of very class-located judgmental attitude in order to make progress on, on climate change. What we are doing now, this class cluelessness, is making it impossible to do what we need to do on climate change and so many other issues. Well, Joan Williams, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thanks for your interest. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.